2: Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, supporting small and medium-sized businesses by creating greater freedom for them to succeed. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend, Verisage Institute colleague and co-host, Ed Kless. And on today's show, folks, we're going to do Entrepreneur Heaven. We're going to profile another four entrepreneurs.
3: Uh, Looking forward to it. I love this this segment.
2: We're really making our way through these folks. (laughs)
3: <laughs> yeah
2: so who do we have uh who do we have for today
3: well we have up uh, george eastman of course from eastman kodak right james cash penny the wright brothers and anita roddick so of uh body shop fame so let's oh, get right. started with with some george eastman
2: i this is a fascinating guy isn't he ron he he, he absolutely is and boy did he really change the world <laughs> even though he didn't really set out to do that <laughs> no But you could definitely tell why he was one of Steve Jobs' uh, heroes, because he was all about design, too. And he was all about making it simple. You know, his goal, he said, he wanted to make the camera as convenient as the pencil.
3: (laughs) Well, pretty close. Pretty close. I mean, you know, ultimately.
2: It really was. I mean, here's a guy born in uh, 1854. And I've got an essay that he wrote, Ed, in 1920, and the title of the essay is Make the Camera as Convenient as the Pencil. <laughs> okay. and, he, and he lays out his philosophy. But what I, what I thought was really interesting um, was, well, he, he, he really liked the letter K. He thought that it was very impressive. It was strong, incisive, and all that. And he wanted a, he wanted a trademark with uh, starting with the letter K and ending with the letter K. And, of course, that's how he came up with Kodak huh. after playing around with a bunch of different uh, combinations. But the first Kodak was actually marketed in July of 1888, 10 years after he started the business and you know ran through a bunch of different experiments on, on how to perfect this. And you basically bought this camera... With a hundred exposures loaded into it, that developed basically two and a half picture, two and a half inch pictures, for and it sold for twenty five dollars.
3: Okay, which that's is about, you, yeah, that's, that's,
2: go ahead. that's about seven hundred dollars today, maybe even more in today's money. So not 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 a cheap thing.
3: Right? No, not at all. And it it was interesting because the the whole idea behind the the, – that really started him is roll film. I mean cameras existed. I think a lot of people think that George Eastman invented the photograph. He did not. I mean the photographs had been around for quite some time. But what what George Eastman created really was the ability to use rolled rolled up film – so that you could take one picture after the next without you know changing the plates and and doing all you know kinds of crazy stuff again simplification and design and of course his work also then led to the invention of the motion picture camera i guess by Edison and others but it, it just the simple idea of saying okay how can we get this to have so that the film is you know rolled up and is reusable that was really the key
2: right he, it, apparently dry plate technology was what he kind of chalked this up to, that was the big, that was his big innovation, uh, was using the dry plate. But mm-hmm. once you bought this camera and you shot these 100 pictures, you sent them off to Kodak. They developed them for you, loaded your camera with 100, uh, new, you know, new roll of film of 100 pictures, sent mm-hmm. it back for $10. Okay. So this this wasn't this wasn't this wasn't a cheap little toy uh, back in those days. That was a lot of money, mm-hmm. and uh, his his uh, marketing slogan was "You press the button and we do the rest."
3: <laughs> well that that that's really what it got down to now, wasn't it? Uh, <laughs> but and, and didn't he run a foul then of of antitrust regulations then too? Because the whole, you know, yeah he wanted to sell the film and the development and then that got into some sticky situations, right?
2: Yes, he did. He did get uh, sued by I believe the government. It m- might have been brought by competitors as most antitrust cases are, but I think the government brought this one against him because he he um he tried to, you know, tried to do both the developing and the processing uh and they wanted him to separate it um but and he lost that case. And he said afterwards that he did not understand the antitrust laws and did not know anyone who did. <laughs> and, and I have to say, as somebody who's who's tried to read the antitrust laws and the, some of the cases on them, and wow, the, we need to do a whole show on that, Ed. Uh, they're, they're just, you talk about uh, murkiness and just being unclear of what you can do uh, to stay you know, a on top of the law, the, the antitrust laws are just a maze,
3: right? But purposefully so, I think. I mean, the, the, it's so that they can be interpreted by by the government attorneys the way they, they they want to be interpreted to to make everybody look bad. I mean, it, it, I, I think that that's part of the the trouble with with the antitrust thing is is that just about loopholes in it, almost by definition.
2: Yeah, they they are very murky. There's also, obviously, there's state antitrust laws to boot. Uh, most of them are brought by competitors. But anyway, I'm just thinking we need to do a show on that because – there, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding with respect to the antitrust laws, and um, I have real strong opinions after studying it for so long. Oh,
3: well, yeah, no, and, and what I what I was saying was that that uh, the 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 whole idea is is they're purposefully murky so that they can be twisted and bent in any way that the governmental attorney wants them to be.
2: Right. Right that's very true and and the the conflicting rulings from different eras it's just it's it's really confusing it's almost to the point where you know if you if you if your prices stay the same you're obviously colluding if you drop your prices you're obviously engaging in predatory pricing and if you <laughs> raise prices you're obviously part of a cartel right so I mean, Anything you do, it's almost you're guilty until you prove yourself innocent.
3: (laughs) Yeah, no. Well, that was the whole thing with the whole Microsoft thing and the saying that it was antitrust to give away Internet Explorer for free. Well, because consumers are being harmed, how, with a free product? But anyway, back to George Eastman. He, again, did some pretty interesting stuff as a philanthropist. Like all of the guys that we've profiled, and I should say guys, I, you know, I'm from New York, so we use guys, meaning guys and gals. Sure. But um, the, the, the folks that we have profiled really have, have been major philanthropists once they've amassed their fortunes. And I think that there's clearly a theme there as well.
2: Yeah, there is. Even I was just uh, I just heard an interview with uh, one of the Koch brothers and, you know, I, I, I lost track of the amount of millions of dollars he's given, not only in New York for like the museum and all of that, but for uh, I think the Sloan Kettering Cancer uh, Foundation. You know, it seems like whatever disease these guys get afflicted with or their loved ones get afflicted with, they take on as a major cause mm-hmm.
3: as well. They should run. They should be yeah. giving
2: it all up, you know? Yeah, absolutely. As Carnegie said, who we profiled last time we did this uh, this segment, which was back in August. yeah, August 7th, we uh, profiled Andrew Carnegie, but he, he obviously gave away a, lo- lo- a ton of his money, and he was actually the one who said, a man who dies wealthy dies disgraced.
3: Yeah, Yeah, but Eastman. Aside from the Eastman School of Music, which a lot of people have heard of, the the University of Rochester and the Rochester Institute of Technology, as well as some buildings at MIT. So he was he was he played all
2: over the place. Yeah, he sure did. And you know, the other thing interesting about him, and again, I, I got some of my background information from. Again, the scholar, I've quoted him before. He wrote a great book called Giants of Enterprise. His name is Richard S. Tedlow. He is actually a business historian, and I just love his writing because uh, he he just goes into such depth when he profiles someone. And he says, unlike other entrepreneurs who who all claim, none of them say they're in it for the money, he said Eastman probably was one who really wasn't. He, and he wasn't out to change the world either. He, he didn't have that Steve Jobs, you know, put a dent in the universe mm-hmm. uh, attitude. He, he was just um, completely obsessed with, with photography and wanted to make this really simple, for as simple as he could. Uh, but he did think, Ed, and I, th- I found this really interesting because apparently there wasn't a cruel bone in this, in this guy's body. But he did have this attitude that businesses wore mm Now, maybe because he was so, you know, honest and didn't have a cruel bone that he that he kind of looked at maybe some behavior of competition or whatever and thought, well, this is just a, you know, war of all against all. But I, I found that to be kind of interesting that he did. He did constantly say that business was war. He likened it to war
3: interesting metaphor i mean i guess the the enlightened idea of you know cooperation or whatever uh, portmanteau you want stick, to stick on that it has has been something that's more recently evolved. I mean, and and I do think the whole idea of, of zero sum thinking. You know, we we we've pr- talked about that a lot on this show, and and how it's still pervasive to this day. There's there's a lot of business people that I have interacted with who, when you when you talk to them about you know the double thank you moment or the the whole idea that that wealth um, is created in transactions, they they look at
2: you kind of funny, you know. Right, No, absolutely. And, and one other thing, Ed, that I found interesting, I've been reading Thomas Sowell's basic economics book uh, that we interviewed him on last year. The, like, and
3: ninth edition? What are we up to the, now?
2: Yeah, fifth edition, <laughs> I think. He's also got a brand new one, so we're trying to get him back on the show. But uh, in 1976, Kodak sold 90% of all film in the USA and 85% of all cameras. Now, the irony, Ed, is they invented the digital camera. What? Yeah, Kodak <laughs> invented the digital camera, but that's actually what put them out of business. They filed for bankruptcy in January of 2012. They just couldn't get away from Kodachrome. They couldn't get away from their existing model. Wow. But they actually invented the digital camera.
3: And, and didn't know what to do with it, or they yeah. they just just couldn't figure it out, or they just said this is going to destroy our our film market. We can't put this I in the right place. Uh,
2: it was both. I think it was mm-hmm. both. They they worried about the cannibalization of their existing market, which of course, when you, you're selling ninety percent of all film, <laughs> mm-hmm. you, you would worry about that, right? This cause this comes back to uh, Andy Grove's line that if you're going to get cannibalized, better to dine with friends, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there yeah. somebody else meet you but uh I I did find that interesting it's just kind of ironic you know but we see how many times have we seen this in business so right that you
3: can't you can't understand that 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 you you should run forward with your new technology well well great talk on thanks Ron on on uh, George Eastman again a fascinating guy and we are about to take our first break so we'll look forward to that but we want to remind you that you can always get a hold of us at ask TSOE at Verisage.com and we want you to visit our website at the soul of as well and and but we do also uh, track twitter so ask hashtag ask tsoe and after the break we're going to be at int- introducing you to another uh, entrepreneur uh, james cash penny so we look forward to that after this word from leading results And we're back talking about entrepreneur heaven. And you know, one last thing about George Eastman, Ron. This is a, on a tragic note. He uh, he he had a, a very intense back problem that affected his spine in his last few years of his life, and ultimately ended up committing suicide rather than than dealing with the, the pain. So I can only imagine uh, so somebody as intense as him. But uh, he his final note um, said to my friends, "My work is done." Why wait?
2: <laughs> <laughs> and maybe we need to do a show on famous last words. You know, no, have, there you
3: go. That's a good I, idea.
2: I have a little fascinating book that's it's just got a bunch of you know famous people, writers, and various uh-huh. folks. Um, you know what purportedly was their last words. And of course, this is very hard to verify, but. And some of them, kind of like the expert speak show we did, um, right. some of them were just hysterical. I mean, I think it'd be really worth uh, going through them and talking about them because there's some interesting folks.
3: All right. Book it for next week, Ron.
2: <laughs> okay. Well, we can think about it. Folks, if you have an opinion on that, let us know at uh, hashtag ask TSOE. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, we got many tweets Ed, on the expert speak show, so that was, that was pretty popular. Yes, it was. So let's talk about James Cash Penny. I I found this guy uh, to be very interesting for a, for a host of reasons. I mean, I know the Penny stores have have gone through you know cyclical times and what they didn't they hire a former Apple exec that was going to come oh, in yeah. and and that that didn't work out and and uh, I, I haven't looked at the financial performance of Penny, but just th- looking at the founder James Cash Penny himself. You know, it was really funny. He, his father was a primitive Baptist preacher. Mm. Uh, I, don't, you know, know, I you,
3: don't even know what a primitive Baptist yeah, is. Look, <laughs> it <up.
2: It's>, <laughs> <laughs> look it up. Look it up. Folks, look it up. It's, it's a real sect. Um, <clears throat> uh-huh. But, you know, he was born on a Missouri farm and he had 12 children, his father. And uh, James Cash's first venture was a butcher shop that ultimately failed and one of the reasons was he's, he refused to supply meat to hotels that sold liquor. Okay. So this guy obviously didn't like tobacco. He didn't like liquor. He didn't like gambling. Uh, none of this was allowed. And this carried over to his later days when, when he started the penny stores. But he actually bought into a dry goods store in, and I'm not sure how to pronounce this, Keminer, Kem- Kem- Kemmerer? Uh, Kemmerer. Yep, Kemmerer?
3: Kemmerer? Yeah, Kemmerer.
2: Wyoming. <laughs> And uh, he bought in with two other partners, and he, he, who he ended up buying out in 1907, I think, for about thirty grand, which is like three quarters of a million dollars in today's money, <laughs> give or take. So it's, uh, <laughs> Significant coin. Uh, yeah, not not sure where he got that, but he then he started to uh, open other stores, and he called these the Golden Rules stores. Um, and by in 1913, he changed the name to J.C. JCPenney. And by 1917, he had 175 stores.
3: Dang. You know, I have to admit when I, we first started doing research on this, I was like James Cash Penny, really Cash Penny. I'm like, well, I'm going to find out this, this guy made up his name, right? That's what I was <laughs> fully expecting. But no, it was really his name. <laughs> <laughs> his parents named him Cash. It's got to be a family name. I can't believe they would, you know,
2: name him Cash. Right. Right. Yeah. I'm not sure where the origin of that came from, but Ed, I wanted to read you an ad because he, you know, he did something I think that was absolutely fascinating. One of the reasons I wanted to talk about this guy Uh was he was kind of like the McDonald's of his day in, in a small way because his stores were actually part owned by the managers, one third owned, because he believed that if you really wanted somebody to work, you know, uh, really put sweat equity into it. They had to have an ownership stake. Yep. And so he made his managers buy into a third of the store. Now, they had to get promoted, much like going through a professional firm. You had to be appointed a partner. You had to be selected after you ran through a trial period of time. You, you started out working in the store. And then, of course, you, he, he gave you one to run. And if you proved yourself, then he would he would let you buy into the partnership. But here was the ad. That he ran uh, to attract potential partners. And it said this Men wanted well established mercantile concern operating 312 retail stores offers, and there's four points. Number one, <laughs> long and continuous hours of work. Number two, the work itself, hard, ceaseless, trying, testing. Three, the work drive unrelenting, day in and day out. Four, and for it, a small living salary, perhaps less than you are getting now. <laughs> and well, that's asked, attractive. <laughs> isn't that isn't that a great one ad? <laughs> Put that on LinkedIn, folks. <laughs> uh, that but, is
3: fantastic. That's up there with, with the, uh, the 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 guy the the Arctic explorer, right? Um, like, yes. whose name escapes me right now. But safe return doubtful. Right. Right.
2: Yep. And, and how many people responded to that? It was overlooked.
3: Oh crazy number yeah the, the this whole safe return doubtful and I'll, and I'll think of the name and blurt it out while you're talking later but the, the he he was doing do it was Antarctic exploration and we put, put this ad that like you know you're probably gonna die you know say and that was it. safe return doubtful was really the the head of the ad and he had you know 5,000 people the same thing mm-hmm. show up the first day to try to get the ad so very similar but but you know what works on this and why, where I think that we can learn from from um b- both of these is that they are authentic.
2: Absolutely. The that, I think that's one thing that runs through this whole series of uh, of these entrepreneurs is these guys had a why. They had a purpose. Mm-hmm. And and they communicated it and they lived it. Mm-hmm.
3: Yep, and, and and yep, clearly. Yep.
2: And, and you know, in that, in, in in the year that this ran, Ed, apparently, I think this was 1918, although I couldn't verify the actual year of this ad. I know it was past the 1907 when he had 100 and whatever stores, but in um, 1917, uh, so it might have been in the 20s sometime, but it, he personally interviewed 5,000 people. He would personally interview them, and he only hired a hundred <laughs> out of the five thousand. Wow! Uh, which, I, which I found really interesting because he was looking for personal characteristics. You know, he had all these theories about beady eyes and thin, purse lips, and you know, he wanted people that were going to work hard and that had upstanding morals and that didn't drink, smoke, or gamble, and and all of that. But he really did view his organization as the process of man building. He said, "We consider ourselves first as a man-building organization, and secondly as a merchandising organization."
3: Wow! But, uh, picture somebody coming coming out like that and saying that you know this is this is what we're doing today.
2: Yeah, no, it'd be. <laughs> and and the other thing that I found really interesting as he grew all these stores, he realized that. He wanted to centralize the financing and the bookkeeping. So even if you were one of these one third owners and you had your own store, you send all the cash receipts every day to headquarters and they took care of all that. He said it was much easier to teach a man merchandising than it was to teach them financing <laughs> and, and bookkeeping, which I have to say, you know, made a lot of sense. He said, look, there's no there's no reason for these stores to have cash. We have it because we do the central purchasing, gives us greater purchasing power, lowers our prices. Mm-hmm. We control the inventory, all of that. And, and so he was kind of in his way a precursor to what Walton did on, on obviously a much, much bigger scale. But then, of course, oddly enough, come to find out that he trained Sam Walton. Really? Yeah, Sam oh, Waltz. that's right. We did.
3: We were t- doing the profile of Walton. That's right. He did work at a penny store. That's correct. He did correct.
2: work in the pennies. Yep. Yeah. And, he, and he knew James Cash, obviously. So I thought that was uh, that was pretty interesting. Yeah, who who didn't die until the seven, 1970s? Yeah, and he was. Uh, I, I believe he was. He was. He remained chairman of the board until nineteen forty six. And he was honorary chairman after that until his death in 1971. And they said he continued up to his death to go into the office. Good for him. <laughs> so like so, like Rabbi Daniel Lappin says, you know, don't retire. <laughs> yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. I wholly agree with that. I wholly agree with that. But interesting, easy to teach people merchandising, which I guess we would call what, marketing and sales today? Yes. Yes. Right. Yep. Than the than the fin- the financial piece, and I I guess by finding this, it wasn't wasn't just the bookkeeping. It was it was all of the 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 stuff on on you know fi- financing the store from a debt leverage that kind of thing.
2: Right, and of course, you know, he always looked for cheapest rent. He didn't want to be in the most busy parts of town because those were high rents. He really wanted to keep his costs down try and pass that along to the consumer, which, of course, is what Walmart has done as well. And he, he, too, had that philosophy. His big thing was inventory turns. That's why he didn't want to stock things that sat around like furniture. He wanted dry goods, you know, average selling clothing sizes and shoes. He didn't carry, you know, odd size shoes because he wanted stuff to turn. His mm. big thing was inventory turnover. Uh, in the nineteen twenty nine stock market crash, incidentally, he he lost virtually all his personal wealth, and he had to actually borrow against his life insurance uh, to to meet his company's payroll. So he t- he took a hit in the stock market crash.
3: Pretty late in the game, too. I mean, that was that was not early on. That was
2: that was late in 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 it, it in was. His yep. yep. Yeah, it really was. So. Yeah, but very, very interesting guy. I, f- I found it interesting. Uh, b- apparently, it was during a visit to a store in Des Moines, Iowa, where he trained uh, the young Sam Walton on how to wrap packages with a minimal amount of paper and ribbon. <laughs> 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 so, so Sam's frugality uh, <laughs> might have started mm-hmm. with James Cash Penny, or at least reinforced by it. <laughs>
3: One of the things that I, I thought was really interesting is he did he did create a um, uh, a, a an organization that supplemented people who were over 40 years old, managers who were over 40 years old. He called it 40 plus, which I guess is still around. Right. And he did this, did this with uh, Thomas J. Watson of IBM. Right. Mm. Uh, Arthur Godfrey, the radio and TV personality and Norman Vincent Peale.
2: Right. Interesting. And
3: yeah. Yeah. And this was a, it was really to help unemployed managers and executives get, New position, so is I guess it the precursor of the LinkedIn of its day, if you will. So, mm-hmm. pretty interesting that he he would take care of of mid level executives or try to you know create an organization that would do so um, for himself. And I wonder if that is related back to that whole stock market crash thing.
2: Yeah, you know, that's interesting. In 1921, he wrote an essay called Why a Buyer's Market Hasn't Changed Our Plans. And in there, he says he usually selected young men to be partners because the older man is apt to have become set in his (laughs) ways. He said, but if you can find a man past 40 who is willing to change, then, you know, he would also accept that too. Because he said that was usually a really good thing, but he he really kind of had a bias against men past forty because he thought that they were set in their ways, and he wanted them young in in uh, the partner position.
3: Yep, interesting. Hey, and by the way, I'm looping back now to the beginning of the se- segment. Ernest Shackleton. Ernest Shackleton. It finally popped into my brain. That's the, this, the the Arctic explorer. And his, right. his ad was, uh, men wanted for hazardous journey, low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, <laughs> safe return, doubtful, honor and recognition in event of success. There you go.
2: <laughs> awesome. Well, Ed, this has been great. This is flying by, folks. When we come back, we're going to do the Wright brothers. But in the meantime, we'd like to remind you that you can email Ed or myself at T S O E. At verisage.com. Please check out our website, thesoulofenterprise.com. We'll have full show notes on each one of these entrepreneurs that we talk about today. You can listen to prior shows there as well, too, and, and leave us a comment. And now we want to hear from our friends at Azamba. Making it easier to listen to the
1: Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, Blackberry, or
3: Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, Blackberry App World, or Android
1: Market. What if you could close more business with less effort and do it faster? What could your people accomplish if they had their own personal assistant keeping track of
2: meetings and reminding them of follow-ups? What would it mean to have a perfect view of what your team and your prospects and your customers are doing? What if you could run your business from anywhere? You can have it all. Visit www.azamba.com forward slash soul today to find out how. That's azamba, A-Z-A-M-B-A
1: dot com forward slash soul
2: Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here doing Entrepreneur Heaven, and we've already taken a look at George Eastman from the Kodak Company and James Cash Penny from J.C. Penney's. Now we want to dive into Ed, one of my favorite, the Wright Brothers.
3: Oh. No, In- incredible, incredibly ge- geniuses who never graduated high school.
2: Never graduated high school. They had a sister uh, who who uh, was the only college graduate. In the family, but uh, yep, they only had a few years of high school at most, I think. And, um, you know, I just read a few months ago The Wright Brothers by David McCulloch, the historian. And uh, I can't recommend this book highly enough, folks. If you want just a great read, I mean, I'd say a beach read, but uh, we're coming out of summer. Uh, (laughs) But if you just want to curl up in your easy chair with a nice drink and read what I think is just an incredibly inspiring story. Uh, and, and David McCullough, again, as you know, is such a great writer.
3: Oh, I, I just fantastic.
2: Think he's just son, done such a great job and it's a, it's a, it's a breezy book. It moves, it's very fast paced, not going to take you long. And it's just, I found it to be incredibly inspiring. And in fact, a lot of, uh, what I have on these guys is, came, came out of that book.
3: Yeah, I read uh, the John Adams book by him in 1776. You know the weird thing about reading a McCullough book is because he does he does so many of the you know the voiceovers for the for the the Ken the Burns films, right? Yes. That when I, when I read it, you actually read it in McCullough's
2: voice. Do you, you, do you find yourself doing that? Yes, you can hear his voice come through. <laughs> I've listened to so many interviews with him, and and uh, I, I loved his book on Truman, and, and and yeah, the John Adams book was great, and the 1776 book. Wow, what a what a great book that was. Yes, yeah, so but this this Wright brothers one I really liked because it all started that when their father Bishop Melton Wright brought home a little toy helicopter from a trip he took, <laughs> and the two boys were just absolutely fascinated with this thing, and that's kind of where you can you can kind of pinpoint where it all started.
3: Yeah. Incredible. It's, it's, you know, some of these stories that you can point a specific time and, and place for, for, the beginnings of the ideas. And, and that was certainly it for them. Uh, and, you know, br- brothers separated by what, about four years I- in age had older brothers. And as you said, the, si- the sister and the sister the only one who graduated from college. Right. Right. Um, yeah. And, and also both Wilbur and Orville, of course, uh, Wilbur, uh, died tragically at 45, but, uh, Orville lived to be 76. N- s- neither, neither ever married. Um, and <laughs> that one of my favorite, my Orville did say at one point though, a man cannot have both a wife
2: and an airplane. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah.
2: <laughs> and, and, you know, the interesting thing about Orville living in, uh, he passed away, I think in, uh, what was it? Uh, January 30th, 1948. Yeah. Uh, he he lived to see you know kind of the the dev, devastation of world war 2 and the bombing and the, you know and all of that he he kind of lived to see that and it mm-hmm. was kind of interesting
3: yes yeah and just uh, the, the the strides that these guys made in the discovery of powered man flight is it really uh, an incredible story, you know. Here, here's these guys, you know, from Dayton, Ohio. They write away to the Smithsonian uh, Institution or or some federal agency to to find out, you know, where where are the most steady wind patterns. You know, and they find out uh, it's Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, because they knew they needed to to take take off into the wind, and so so they they went and and moved all of their stuff there. You know, not a huge trek, and these guys were not making boatloads of cash in the bicycle shop that they were running right there was there was not a whole heck of a lot of money there
2: well it was some i mean they they opened their bike store in dayton in 1893 and it did earn them about two to three grand a year which you know it's it's, i don't know it's like 55 grand a day now it's really hard to compare but but what is interesting is they they spent about a thousand dollars on, on, um, you know, to get him to Kitty Hawk and to get to that inaugural flight in December. Um, so they they did pour a lot of what they earned in, into this venture. And and you're right, he he did write. Wilbur actually wrote to the uh, U.S. Weather Bureau in Washington D.C. asking about wind okay, patterns it is, around. It yeah, around the country, and that's how that's how they came up to Kitty Hawk. I I didn't realize that. I I always wondered why Kitty Hawk. You know, I did. Well, that's the Weather Bureau gave them. They said there's some great winds out there, and and uh, sure enough, it was. But before that, Ed Wilbur actually sat down. And um, McCulloch's got a picture of this letter that he wrote to the Smithsonian, and it was on the, you know, the Wright Brothers bicycle shop stationery. And he asked the Smithsonian, "We, I'm going to undertake this study of of powered human flight, and I'm going to, you know, uh, do everything I can to bring it to fruition. Please send me everything you have on it, books, papers, everything. <laughs> and uh, it's a great letter, and it, you just – you read it now, and you, you think, wow – these guys were just totally focused and committed.
3: Yes. And they're one of my favorite stories. It, it, it's, it's really an anti-story. The, the story never occurred, but I often tell it. And it's when I'm trying to explain the difference in, in some other work that we've talked about earlier, the Peter Block how versus what matters. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the pe- people ask, well, you know, how, how have other people done this successfully? and the question really needs to become well what is it that we want to create right because if you're if you're asking how have other people done it successfully you could you could end up with this conversation this is my imagined conversation between Wilbur and Orville on their way from from Dayton Ohio to Kitty Hawk right so wilbur um you know what do you think of this powered man flight how have other people done this success- successfully uh, well, well, uh, well, Orville. I've been been thinking about that, and I did some research at the Dayton Library, and you know, there was like this Greek guy, Icarus Daedalus. That didn't work out so well. He ended up crashing and burning because he got too close to the sun with the wax and the wings. And then, of course, you know, we have Leonardo da Vinci, the greatest human mind ever. That just he came up with no less than four different flying machines. The only one that actually gets off the ground though is this thing called the heliocopter, and it really doesn't fly, it sort of jumps. And it 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 just jumps to the point where it where it completely crashes and demolishes itself with about six or seven jumps, so that didn't work out. Oh yeah, you're right. The hell with it, Wilbur, let's just go back to the bicycle shop. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so true, <laughs> so true, and and you know, and this is made famous probably from Simon X talk, but Samuel Pierpont Langley, uh, who who invented the pilotless aerodome, which was launched from a houseboat, by the way, in eighteen ninety six in the Potomac, and it flew for about a half a mile before it crashed, mm-hmm. and and there was a big scandal. And later on, um, after I believe it was after the first brother died. Uh, the Smithsonian actually tagged Langley as the inventor of powdered a uh, powered human flight, and boy, mm-hmm. did that, boy, did, did that really upset them.
3: Yes, uh, it did. Man, <laughs> they had a uh, feud for years, right? With the Smithsonian.
2: Yes, yes b- big feud. They were involved in lots of patent lawsuits, and and they won every one. By the way, mm-hmm. uh, which was really interesting, but. It, it, it was really funny, and on the, uh, the famous flight the December 17th, 1903, i didn 't realize it, but they actually flipped a coin to see who was going to fly first that day, <laughs> and Wilbur won. but you know, both of them flew that day, so right. there were actually four flights uh, mm-hmm. of, of various lengths and, and distance, and, and uh, McCulloch's even got a copy of the telegram they sent home uh, reporting to the father you know success today, because nobody was around to see it. There were nope. no reporters or, you know, we didn't learn about it until way later. And, of course, they couldn't get the, the United States government interested in their flyer. You know, after they did the Kitty Hawk flight, they went back home and they started flying in this local field in Dayton. And the owner of that field thought that they were nuts even though right. he let it do it. <laughs> but I think these two guys are just a pair of nuts. But um, but they couldn't get the U.S. government interested. The government wanted all these. They wanted plans. They wanted demonstrations. You had to prove everything would work, blah, blah, blah. And they got frustrated, and they went over to France mm-hmm. and, and started chopping their plane in Europe. And France was the first to bite and said, you know, we'll pay you one million francs for one of your flyers if you come over and do some demo flights, mm-hmm. which, of course um, – you know, I think it was Wilbur who went over there and, and did that, and he, he became a star.
3: Mm-hmm. Interesting, because they were not – we mentioned they didn't even go to college, but they, they they didn't even do a lot of math, right? They didn't go, like, calculations and crap. It was trial and error, ju- just trying to make it work. And in the end, you know, their, their technology for the way that the wings worked, I believe, ended up being f- substandard, right? I forget who came after them. Yeah.
2: Th- right. Curtis, uh, Cur- uh some Curtis, somebody, yeah. Curtis, somebody, um, who, who they have actually had patent suits with kind of came up with the on and, and some other things but yeah they, they, it was improved upon for sure but they, they actually did Ed, study and the stuff they got from the Smithsonian you know guys like Langley and a whole bunch of others were working on this and they did have calculations and charts and statistics and all this stuff and the Wright brothers said they're completely worthless because after they <laughs> conducted so many experiments they said th- this is worthless these guys are just they're just making it up because they were out there actually trying to fly and, you know, what they said later, and I just love this line because how, how well does this tie into the theme of our show? And even what George Gilder was saying, he said, but the best dividends on the labor invested have invariably come from seeking more knowledge rather than more power.
3: Brilliant. Brilliant. Uh, what, did, did you say, Ron, that government agencies were faking their data? Did you, is that what you said? Uh,
1: what <laughs> <laughs> Not I
3: can't so much believe government it.
2: government agencies, but the people funded by the government. Oh, well, like whatever. Langley and and, and some other. The government others.
3: probably wanted the numbers, like <laughs> earned value and project management. Holy cow. <laughs> <laughs> Early versions of that. All right. Well, we, I, I can't believe it, Ron. We're already up against our last segment here, and we are, but we want to hear from my. Uh, employer, Sage. But we do have coming up one more, uh, and we're going to talk about Anita Roddick, the founder of The Body Shop. But first, let's hear from Sage.
0: Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN four new employees, a 20% increase in revenue, being one of the 9 million women business owners in the U.S. These are your proudest numbers, your landmarks of growth and success. Sage helps you achieve business milestones with cloud and software solutions that lead to deeper financial insights. Believe in your numbers. See what Sage can do for your business. Visit believeinyournumbers.com today. we're Tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now back to The Soul of Enterprise.
3: Born on October 23rd, 1942, uh, Anita Roderick, the founder of The Body Shop, was a fairly intriguing personality. She not only wanted to 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 uh, make women feel beautiful, so following on the footsteps of some of the other folks that we've we've profiled previously uh, but a huge impact in the area of what she called ethical consumerism uh, you know first uh, organization that was known to prohibit ingredients tested on animals, although there's some question about that, so we'll probably take that on and also the idea of fair trade with uh, with third world. Countries And, uh, you know, Ron and I have, have done a lot of talking about corporate social responsibility. And one of the things that I think is most important to take away from uh, this, and I think Anita Rodica is a great example of this, Ron, is that, you know, if this is part of the founding principles of your organization, then I've really got no problem with it at all, right? Because th- th- you're saying, hey, this is what we're about. We're we yes we we seek seek to make a profit, but we're going to do it with these constraints that we have put on ourselves, and I've got no problem with that at all. What I what I do begin to have an issue with is the enforced corporate corporate social responsibility from the outside that says, okay, wait a minute here. You know you've had a, a business for thirty forty years, and shareholders have have bought your stock, and then all of a sudden you're saying, okay, well we're going green. Because it's the it's the marketing thing to do. So I think Anita Roderick is a great example of, hey, listen, when it starts from the beginning with the founding principles, you can actually make this work, and,
2: and it works really well. I agree. I mean, you can see that with uh, Whole Foods, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, who is it? Uh, Mackey.
3: Yep, John Mackey. John
2: Mackey and uh, does, doesn't target uh, – isn't that part of their thing as well? They also donate a certain percent of after-tax profits to charity. As mm-hmm. part of Google, their, do no evil. Uh, Google. Uh, even Google's um, IPO letter, which I think is one of the most profound documents ever written by the two Google founders, basically said, look, we're going to make incredibly risky investments that are not going to pay off for decades. <laughs> and if that <laughs> freaks you out, don't buy our stock. And, uh-huh. and, they, and they say this repeatedly throughout this IPO letter. And, you know, if you look at some of the stuff they're doing, right, the driverless car and all mm-hmm. their other Google X projects, they're, they're living by that code. So I, I agree. And I, I learned of Anita actually from our mutual acquaintance, Verisage Institute colleague, Paul Dunn. Mm-hmm. He told me to read her book, um, Body and Soul, which I did. Now, uh, politically, I don't agree with much Anita Roddick stood for. But I've always admired her as a business person and and as an entrepreneur because she did have a purpose. She did have a code of of morals, and she had very strong beliefs, and she lived them. She actually thought that business and political advocacy could be merged, and she did both. And you know what? I kind of admire that. I mean, I don't think there's enough of that in corporate America. I think too much of corporate America has gone melt-toast and – a little mm-hmm. bit too PC. She stood up. Now, yeah, she got bashed on, you know, certain sides of the street for that. But so what? Mm-hmm. And if you don't like it, don't buy her product. And she was okay with that. She was. Absolutely. And so I've, I've always admired that about her. So I, I I think this is really quite a story. Now, <laughs> what's interesting is there's some controversy <laughs> mm-hmm. sur- surrounding her. Um one thing and and i i can't say i understand this completely and or nor am i author, an authority on it but this idea of no animal testing when it comes to cosmetics from what i understand talking to people in that industry anything that hits the skin has been tested on animals mm-hmm. period i don't care what it is otherwise it doesn't get through
3: well, and and that goes to the whole FDA approval, right? And I don't, I I, I don't know whether the the FDA doesn't, uh, well, you know, only allows for certain products to make it on the market when you do certain tests. So the company themselves, they might not test right. it on animals. But certainly, if it's got to get approval from some organization, some governmental body, it's very likely that it was. But the company can absolve themselves and say, "Hey, listen, we, we not—we didn't, we didn't sanction
2: it. it, right? We didn't sanction. Right. it. We didn't do it." But right. you know, that's kind of that's that's kind of shallow and hollow. The way it was explained to me is the people that she's buying it from definitely had it tested on animals. Even maybe if the supplier company didn't test it on animals. Somebody did, right? I mean, there's a whole chain here. <laughs> and, and eventually, right. if it's going on the human skin, it's being tested on the animals, folks. I mean, that, that's the bottom line.
3: Yeah. And the other controversy I think she was involved with, with is that, that she it, basically, you know, from, over from the UK and was in your neck of the woods, around San Francisco, Right. Where there was there was stores called the body shop in the early 70s. And, you know, she (laughs) at one point just took the brochures word for word, uh, even took the name. And, and went over to, to, uh, back to the UK and and started the organization there. And I guess at a certain point they, they came back and fi- figured out a, a deal, right. Where they would, would, uh, she would, she would buy out the name to body shop from the original owners. And there was a confidentiality agreement, et cetera, um, but uh, interestingly enough, I guess it's called – the, the or is now called Body Time. Are they still around, Ron? I, still-
2: you know, I don't I, – I, I wanted to look them up, but I'm not sure. I'm not okay. sure if they're still around. But you're right. They did reach an agreement and – uh, everything was all all cleared up, but it does look like she stole their name and their marketing brochure almost word for word.
3: <laughs> well, you know, it, it's the, the marketing brochure. I have more of a problem with the, the name Body Shop is that's the, the, doesn't appear too much the, the, too uh, innovative per se, but still, yeah, not right. not. Not the best part of the story. But, we, again, we will say this. I think she did some incredible things for all of the charitable organizations, uh, including the, the the Children on the Edge organization that she founded to help disadvantaged children in, in Eastern Europe and Asia. Great work there.
2: Totally true. And, and, and she wrote an essay in 1998 that I really like called Four Letter Words. And she says, love, give, care, feel, hope, <clears throat> fair, soul. How how interesting is that mm. and true are all found in my work, which it was her all time favorite word, <laughs> work. <laughs> and she said, "We can bring our heart to work." She said, "For me, the workplace is an incubator for the human spirit." And uh, she said, "You know, you can't uh, you can't manage enthusiasm, and it cannot be taught." And she kept a sign above her office door: "Department of the Future." Love that. She, she, I, I do too. She was. Always interested in her employees' feedback. She anywhere she went, any store she visited, she got right in and got right up to them and just surprised them. And and you know, being the CEO and being kind of famous at that point, she 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 said I would get the spontaneous feedback of what was really happening in the organization. And she got a lot of ideas out of that. And she she of course gave everybody half a day a month to work on community services. But and and of course the. Uh, what the queen uh, gave her the former title of Dame, right? Right. Um, So she is known as Dame uh, (laughs) Roddick. But one of my favorite all-time quotes from her, Ed, and I I used to use this all the time. She said, Mm -hmm. if you think you're too small to have an impact, try going to bed with a mosquito.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's good. That's good. That's good. (laughs) Wow. Well, we are near the end of the show already, Ron.
2: Awesome. Well, that was great fun.
3: Yep. Well, we will be back next week, and I guess I will see you in 167 hours. Excellent.
2: This has been the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE. Supporting small and medium-sized businesses by creating greater freedom for them to succeed. Join us next week, folks, on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. In the meantime, please check us out at thesoulofenterprise.com. We'll have full show notes up there today on the four entrepreneurs that we profiled. And in the meantime, you can contact Ed or myself at tsoe at Varisage.com. Keep those iTunes reviews coming in, folks. And thank you for listening and have a great weekend.
0: Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com.